It's time for our regular segment with barrister and solicitor, Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking with Michael Mulligan. Good morning, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to have made it out uh, from under the desk. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. Um, as as I know that you are aware, there's a, a large amount of political discourse, and of course we have those elements of theatricality flying back and forth, talking about how our justice system works to either detain people under the Mental Health Act or in remand before trial. I think it's very important as we continue this debate to touch base with criminal defense counsel such as yourself to be advised of, of developments and also to adequately understand what the courts are saying about this. I'm noticing that we actually have the topics of a judicial review of decisions made by a mental health review board regarding involuntary confinement under the Mental Health Act is one of our first stories today. We do. Uh, And I think one of the reasons why that case is an important one to talk about, uh, because it discusses how that system works is to contrast it with how the criminal justice system deals with bail. Yes. Right? Um, and the important thing in the criminal context to remember um, is that the reason we have a bail system at all um, is really a function of the presumption of innocence, right? Yeah. If you uh, don't have a system which would uh, ordinarily uh, result in somebody being who is accused of a crime being released, the presumption of innocence would be a almost meaningless concept. Uh, And while I appreciate that there are political points to be scored from saying, you know, why didn't uh, somebody uh, immediately put this person in prison? That's how bail decisions really need to be analyzed because we're not asked to, the decision on bail is not a matter of, you know, what sentence should be imposed upon somebody whom we know is guilty of an offense, right? That's sentencing. Bail is, What do we do when somebody is accused of committing a crime but has not been convicted of a crime? Yes. Um, And so that's really important to remember. At at the heart of how we deal with bail is the presumption of innocence. And that's just, I think, pretty fundamental to how our system is designed. Uh, And there's been discussion as well about, you know, what should the Crown be doing or should they be given some direction? Yes. It's been interesting to listen to. Yeah. Uh, In fact... There is direction provided to Crown Council. Crown don't just go off and do whatever they think feels right or something. Um, in, in fact, there is a thing called the Crown Council Policy Manual, and it's pretty detailed. Uh, and it gives instructions to Crown on how they're to make various decisions, because you want consistent, principled decisions being made, not just the length of somebody's foot. Right? Indeed, yes. Uh, and so... But one of those um, uh, directions in the Crown Council Policy Manual deals with the issue of bail. And I should pause here to say that in the majority of criminal cases, uh, the police officer is making the release decision. In the majority of cases, the when the police uh, arrest somebody, let's say they arrest somebody for shoplifting, mm-hmm. the police don't routinely keep the person in jail and ask the Crown to seek the person's detention. In the overwhelming majority of cases, the police officer themselves makes the decision, this person should be released on whatever conditions the police officer concludes are appropriate. Hmm. Uh, And there's provision for that. They can uh, release a person on what's called an undertaking to a peace officer, where the officer can uh, list the conditions that they think are appropriate. If the person agrees to it, they're then bound by it, uh, unless a judge were to later determine that something should be changed. So that's how most cases, in fact, play out. But 
where the police are of the view that somebody should be detained even before their trial, um, they would hold the person in custody and they'd send a report to Crown Council and then Crown Council have direction in the form of the Crown Council policy manual. How should they approach it? Yes. And the direction they're given is consistent with the law, as one would expect it to be. Um, and it sets out, for example, that uh, bail, the appropriate purposes of bail are to make sure somebody's going to attend court. That's job one, yeah. right? Yeah. If somebody's not going to show up, if they have a history of failing to show up, if they have uh, no connection to the community or it's a very serious offense where a person might flee, that's a legitimate reason to detain somebody. We need to make sure that they are there for trial. You can also detain somebody if it's necessary to protect the public or protect a person. Yeah. That's yeah. A, a legitimate reason to do it as well. Or uh, to maintain confidence in the administration of justice. Now, that last one is not just a catch-all, anything that people would find popular, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. There's a legal analysis of that, right? And what's contemplated there would be serious cases where there's, uh, um, there may not be some concern about a person not showing up or need to say, keep the uh, public safe. Like, let's say, for example, the mayor is caught on video uh, murdering somebody, <laughs> right? You say, well... They're probably going to show up in court. They have a long connection to the community. Maybe even they live in the municipality. Yes. Uh, and maybe. we don't need to do it to protect the public. Maybe the person killed was their spouse, right? Mm. So you'd say, well, they're not a general risk to the public, but we have it on video, right? So you might say, we just need to detain the person. It's an inevitable outcome. But now, this is important, and this is in the policy, and it reflects the law, and it ties in with the case we need to talk about. Yeah. Um, that it is not legally justifiable to seek pretrial detention or bail conditions for any other purpose, including, and it lists them, to punish the accused, right? Yeah. Yeah. We don't punish people who are presumed to be innocent. You cannot do it to enforce treatment on the accused. That's mm. not permissible, okay. including mental health treatment or addictions treatment, nor is it permissible to use it as a way to expedite the judicial process. And what's meant there is if you detain somebody on a minor offense, like shoplifting, yeah. and they're told their trial is going to be in six months. Well, what they're never having a trial. They're just pleading guilty. It would make no sense to remain in jail for that period of time. Yeah, uh, And so the policy manual, and there is a policy manual, is consistent with the law, and it's consistent with really important principles. But that does not mean that there isn't a solution uh, to the kind of very serious problems we are seeing in the community. Yes. Right? Like yeah. the tragic murder of uh, Constable Yang in Vancouver, yeah. right? This was a, a person who would have been living in a tent in a park for months. I would be flabbergasted if the accused doesn't turn out to have serious underlying mental health uh, issues in that case, right? Indeed. That hasn't yes. been released. We don't have any evidence about that yet. Uh, but there's my prediction that you are very unlikely to have somebody who doesn't suffer from mental health difficulties, probably substance abuse or a combination of those things, living in a tent in a park for months. That's just very unlikely. Yeah. And there is a legal response to it, but the legal response is not bail. The problem there, the problem with the person living in a tent in the park is not the bail system. If you want to wait for the person to allegedly commit a crime and then try to detain them, that is a futile uh, and carts left the, you know, the horse has left the barn solution to a problem. Yes. We have an approach to this. And in British Columbia, it's mental health legislation. The Mental Health Act in B.C. 
allows for people to be detained for the purpose of treatment rather than waiting to see if somebody might commit some random act of violence because they are suffering from a profound mental illness. Waiting for that to happen and then responding to it by trying to deny them bail is not the solution. Um, And so this is a case which is useful. It's a Victoria case. It's a local one. It involves the Jubilee Hospital and the Mental Health Review Board. And it's useful, first of all, because it gives a picture of the kind of challenges to be dealt with, and it lays out how that system operates. The case involved a uh, woman, a 52-year-old single mother, um, who has been suffering with mental illness, it sounds like, for a number of years. Um, And she had been uh, diagnosed uh, with uh, uh, mental illness um, some years ago, and she'd been twice detained under the Mental Health Act. The Mental Health Act allows somebody to be held um, involuntarily for treatment um, if a doctor, first of all, concludes that the person is going to have a mental health, uh, mental illness and is going to be a, essentially a danger to themselves or to somebody else. Uh, and the system works in a progressive way. First of all, a single doctor can certify somebody under the Mental Health Act for 48 hours. Right, so somebody. Let's say the police find somebody who's um, acting in a uh, dangerous fashion. They bring them to the hospital. A single doctor can fill out a certificate and have them held there for observation and treatment for 48 hours. If you want to keep the person longer than that, up to a month, Mm -hmm. a second doctor also has to agree, right, and sign off on a certificate. And then, if it's going to be longer than uh, a month, there's a process where a person can have a uh, review conducted. Uh, by the Mental Health Review Board, right, to determine should they still be held involuntarily uh, in the hospital for treatment. All of that, of course, is subject to there being space in a hospital to provide people treatment. Ah, right? that's be, a key let's factor. Be, yeah. Let's be real, right? It's not sufficient to simply say, well, we have the uh, we have this act and it says these things can happen. Um, you need to have places for people to be. And many of those were closed. And so you have people with mental illness living in tents. uh, And what do you think is going to happen, right? You're going to have tragedies, right? You just are going to have tragedies. Um, And so if there is to be an immediate response uh, to the kind of things that we've seen in the community, things like that tragic case in Vancouver, that's awful, right? An immediate response to that, an immediate appropriate response to that is not trying to deal with conditions of bail or the Mm. wording of the criminal code, that's not going to solve that problem. It might feel satisfying because people are angry, right? And when people are angry, they want to see somebody punished, right? That's an understandable human reaction, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not going to solve the problem, right? It might feel good, but trying to hold people in jail who have not been convicted of a criminal offense is not the solution to mentally ill people who are addicted to drugs living in tents and randomly attacking people. It's just not. Mm. Uh, And as we talked about uh, recently, the system has no capacity to do that, right? The number of people who are uh, living on the street who are dealing with mental health difficulties, serious ones, drug addictions, we have nowhere near the capacity to just lock people up in prison. And how long do you lock them up for? And what is that doing? 
right? Uh, It's satisfying. You want to do it, but it's not necessarily the rational, smart approach to stopping the problem, which is what needs to happen. So there is an immediate response, and an immediate response would be to increase funding to create uh, spaces, which would be secure spaces, where if somebody is determined to have a serious mental illness and their danger to themselves or others, right, like somebody who's engaged in random acts of violence, right, it, virtually by definition, are, are there? can you think of a many circumstances where somebody's not going to have a serious mental illness who's randomly hitting people or not <laughs> many public? not no, many at all doesn't make, no doesn't make any sense they're not um his old um superman reference they're not lex luther <laughs> no, right? they're not no. they're just tr- trying to do evil to amass an empire take over the world most of those people are seriously seriously troubled yes uh and if you want to do something about it if you want to stop those kinds of things and i appreciate it's not as viscerally satisfying you're saying i'm angry lock them up mm. right If you want to stop them, one of the immediate things that could be done would be to increase funding for uh, mental health, including space for people who are determined to have serious mental health, uh, mental illnesses, who are a danger to themselves or others in the community, to have a secure facility with capacity for them to be. Uh, And that is not only going to protect the public, it's the humane thing to be doing. The idea that we have mentally ill people living in tents in parks should be viewed as outrageous, yes. right? It's like if we, it's like if we didn't have capacity for people with broken bones and we had them living in uh, tents or hanging out in tents in the parking lot of the hospital or something. How long would that go on for before the public would be well, hold on, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, better expand the emergency department. We're not just going to let the person with a you know who's bleeding to death sit in a a tent outside hoping that somebody will come along and help them. That's an immediate response. And I think it's one which is long past due. Uh, And it requires money and it requires resources and it's a challenge. And we see the challenge all over the stresses in the healthcare system, right? With not enough doctors, GPs, uh, you know, adequate uh, compensation to keep people working. But if you really want to stop these things, the answer is not to Uh, come to a solution that feels satisfying after the fact, it's to do something before. Um, And so that, I think, really makes sense. Um, And this decision, in addition to setting out those general principles, I mean, the, the particular decision was an interesting one, and people should know how that works. When there's a review... We should take a break. Uh, This is a a fascinating, spellbinding conversation, Michael, and we're pleased to be able to benefit from your vast experience in this field. You're helping me understand it better as well. I do need to take a commercial break, though, so we'll continue in just a moment. All right, legally speaking, right after this. Lawyers have to apply the law. That's right in the profession. We may wish that the law provided for one scenario or another, but it either does or it doesn't. And if we seek a change to the words on that paper, then we should engage in political advocacy. Instead of wishful thinking, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, as we continue better understanding how British Columbia and indeed Canada's system works, the distinction between bail, which is not to be used as a way to enforce treatment, mental health or otherwise, Uh, The difference between that and being sectioned or being apprehended under the Mental Health Act. And there's a recent case that we can learn from. Yes, indeed. And so 
that the mental health system, which is designed to provide treatment, quite unlike the bail system, mm-hmm. um, as I mentioned, has sort of three different levels. Sort of, uh, if somebody's brought in, and a single doctor can fill out a certificate, uh, which would compel the person to remain for treatment for up to forty-eight hours. Then, if you want to keep the person there for more for up to a month, you have to have a second doctor sign off on a another certificate. And then, if it's to be beyond that. Uh, there's a process where a person can apply to have a review done to determine should they be kept for involuntary treatment. All of that, of course, is subject to there has to be a place where you can be kept for involuntary treatment. Um, and when there is a review, that that's what this case dealt with. It was a, a Victoria case with a, a woman uh, who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, Yes, uh, bipolar one. Um, and uh, her first admission under the mental health uh, legislation came uh, after she had a number of traumatic events in her life, uh, including uh, witnessing the death of her father, her mother having a heart attack, separation, and becoming homeless. And she wound up, uh, first of all, winding up uh, in, uh, in, cust- in voluntary treatment for a month and a half. She was released, and then a couple of years later, uh, she went back in for a treatment when she sought assistance because she was having trouble caring for her daughter. Um, and she was in uh, treatment for a, a period of uh, a few months, three months, and then was released on uh, what's referred to as an extended leave. Hmm. And what's going on there is that the person is apprehended under the Mental Health Act. We have the legislation, right? But if they're not going to be kept in a facility or if there is no capacity in the facility, the person can then just be released, uh, but on conditions. Uh, and in this case, one of the conditions she was released on was that she involuntarily take an antipsychotic medication. Hmm. Uh, and it's a medication which she had to come in for to have injected. Yes. And, and it's a medication which um, has, in my brief uh, examination of the literature on it, mm-hmm. potentially very serious side effects, including... Uh, in some people, increased risk of stroke, uh, increased probability of becoming uh, um, uh, psych- uh, sorry, suicidal, mm-hmm. uh, very profound and serious uh, side effects uh, from this medication, but she was ordered to take it. Uh, and she had a, a period of six months when she didn't have any symptoms, and she didn't want to continue taking the medication because of the serious side effects. Yes. Um, the doctor treating her disagreed. And so the result was that the police came to her home, handcuffed her, brought her to the hospital uh, in custody where they forcibly injected her. Mm. Um, That's how the system responds to it. And so then there was a review about whether um, she should be continued to be certified under the Mental Health Act. And when you have a review, there's a panel that makes that decision. The panel is made up of three people. It's made up of somebody who has to be a, a doctor or a retired doctor. It has to be somebody who's a lawyer, member of the Law Society in good standing, yes. and a third person who's neither a doctor nor a lawyer, right? So that's what we have to, to conduct a review. And the legal issue here was that her treating doctor had diagnosed her with this um, condition, uh, and the board took the position that because there was this diagnosis, they were obliged to accept it as true unless there was evidence to show otherwise. Hmm. And the judge on the review found that that's not so, uh, that the board needs to exercise that board of three people, the doctor, retired doctor, lawyer, and member of the public, right, who's neither of those things, um, needs to exercise their own judgment uh, about whether the person not only has a mental disorder, uh, but whether the person and the language requires treatment, 
um, as a result of a condition which seriously impairs the person's ability to react appropriately to the person's environment uh, or to associate with others, right? And it involves that test of whether they're a danger to themselves or someone else. Yeah. And so the court conducting this review found that it, the uh, board was not, uh, that panel was not obliged to just accept the diagnosis of the doctor. They had to do their own analysis. And moreover, they had to provide reasons, right, for their conclusion. And they found, the court found that there hadn't been adequate reasons provided, which is an important part of procedural fairness. When a decision's made about you, um, you should have a right to know, well, how did that, does that decision reached, right? Why yeah. did you conclude that I needed to keep getting the shots? Uh, And so the result here is that the matter has been remitted back to the Mental Health Review Board uh, to uh, analyze the case with those instructions from the court. So the person remains under the Mental Health Act uh, in that state of being released in a long-term way, subject to having to do things or else they'd be brought back in. Um, And so there is a system in place. We have the legislation, right? And and I don't think too many people would disagree with that concept, but if you have somebody who's suffering from a a serious mental illness and they're a danger to themselves or others, like may engage in random acts of violence with respect to other people, we have a scheme. It's already there. (laughs) Uh, And what you need to do is resource the scheme. And again, that's harder than just won't you just send a direction to Crown telling them to try to keep people in jail? Or what if you just change the wording of some section of the criminal code, right? Those seem quick. They seem satisfying, right? But if you really want to do something about this, it's pretty clear what would help and what could be done quite readily. But it's not a memo or a change to a policy manual uh, or a meeting in Ottawa or an amendment to the criminal code. One of the things which would immediately help if you want to reduce the danger that people are in by people with mental illness who are not treated and don't have support in the community is provide that support uh, and provide places that are secure facilities for those people who need it um, so that they have somewhere other than a tent in a park where they can get treatment. And if you do that, you're not going to have the same number of random attacks by people with maces and knives and various other completely irrational things going on. There's a solution. It's a ready solution, but it needs to come from a place of rationality, uh, and it requires more than just a, a change or a memo. It would require money, resources, build the place, staff the place. That's what you need to do if you want to affect real change, uh, not some amendment to the legislation. We have the legislation. Michael Mulligan, I thank you so much for the benefit of your knowledge and insight. Uh, For folks who don't listen to us regularly, Michael serves as criminal defense counsel here in the Victoria area. He knows the system backwards and forwards. That is his job, and we appreciate the benefit of his experience. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX, Michael, thank you as always. Thank you so much. All right. Until next week. Bye now.